0: Radio Erin A new McMaster, a memorial tribute. The contributors you'll hear include Emlyn Williams, Noel Coward, Harold Pinter, Dame Sybil Thorndike, Elizabeth Bergner, Hilton Edwards, Pat McGee, Gerard McLarnan, and Mihal McLehomoyd. He got terrific power.
1: And he'd got, which I think is more extraordinary still, he had an enormous uh, vocal organ. The, and when the top was blown off the volcano and all hell was coming out, it was absolutely terrific. It never cracked. You never got the feeling that there's a, a vacuum behind it. You. you felt there was an enormous, great big space behind Mac, and all hell was in it. And that's why that at moments that were absolutely terrific, like in the, the fourth act of hell, not the third act, but right into the fourth act, where all hell is coming up out of the pit and going into the epileptic fit, and after that, he was absolutely marvellous, he was terrific. And in the same, in almost in the big moments of all those plays, that really is the howlings of the damned, isn't it? And that's when Mac was always terrific. And never, never, you never sort of split your mind with, with a feeling of consideration for his Lanning's so is going to be equal to it. It was always, always, always equal to it.
2: My first sight of Mac was at a now-vanished London restaurant called Eppenroth's as its name suggests, it was a Germanic sort of a place in the heart of Piccadilly Circus and the air at Appenrust was always fragrant with leberwurst and gherkins and kartoffel salat that you sprinkle with paprika and it was heavy too with the scent of cold beer and of hot frothing chocolate and that, you know, was about two years before the First World War and because I was a child and Mac had just achieved or was about to achieve his 21st birthday He seemed to me completely grown up and the most, oh, I suppose, hilariously beautiful creature I'd ever seen, was the way you'd put it. He was both hilarious and beautiful. There was something even hilarious about his good looks. Tall and golden-haired, with astonishing eyes, that were the colour not of violets, as so many people thought, but of hair bells. The term Greek gob was, of course, frequently applied to him behind his back and in front of his face. And it could be true, Mickey, he said on the very first day I met him. Because, you see, after all, I am half Irish and half Greek. I mean, dear, my stepmother was Greek, you see, and if that doesn't make me half Greek, what does? That was Mac all over. His sense of calculative exactitude was never his strongest point. Oh, but my poor nose, dear, he'd continue. Oh, well, I suppose one might call it sort of Roman in a way. Don't you think so? Yes, Roman, you know. Like Sarah in
3: Britannicus, Noel Card met Mac through his wife, Marjorie. She was the sister of Michael MacLearmore, and Michael MacLearmore, when he was called Alfred Wilmore,
4: made his debut in the theatre with me in 1910 or 11. I forget which it was. I think 10. Anyway, the rehearsals were in 1910. I know we opened in 1911 in the play called The Goldfish. And then, very shortly after that, when I was quite a boy, I met Mac, and I've known him ever since, on and off. I've never seen him act. I've just missed him, but what I do remember him as was a very remarkable man of the theater. He oozed theater from every pore. He had a that quality of theater, like the uh, light
3: on a red curtain from Footlights. He was a real theater character. Elizabeth Bergner, Emlyn Williams, and Sybil Thorndike.
5: We met first time in... 37 in the museum of cairo of all places suddenly he came towards me and said but you are elizabeth bergner and that was our first meeting and then about 15 years later we met the second time in australia from there on we became very fast friends marjorie and he and i he did something unusually kind to me there. He read seven or eight different characters so that I should be able to include the trial scene of St. Joan in a recital evening I was given. Can you imagine such a thing? Really one had to be careful not to take it for granted. I mean, his generosity and kindness.
0: Nine years ago, Glad Henson and I were playing in a play of mine in Dublin, and one night she took me to Mac and Marjorie's place. You'll like him, she said. He's a dear man. After weeks of featureless hotel bedrooms, walking up those funny old mews stairs and into that flat was like coming home. It was warm and crooked and untidy, bursting with papers, pictures, ornaments and books everywhere. It was home. I'd heard a lot about Mac from his brother-in-law, Michael and I knew that Annie McMaster played Shakespeare superbly in the old grand manner, and half expected a stately handsome old boy with old grand manners and an old grand voice. I found instead an eager, merry, ageless, agile Irish fellow, bright eyes and ringing laugh, whom I felt I'd known since I was ever in the theatre. Marjorie, too, was a surprise. I'd envisaged Michael's sister as being on the massive side and as ebullient as he is. Instead, I was greeted by a shy, gentle whisper of an Irish girl, as ageless as her husband. She looked like a third Gish sister, and as like her brother, as milk is like Quicksilver. The next time I saw Mac was again in Dublin. Seems very right I should have been with him so much there, when I was appearing as Dickens. This time, over the merriment of lunches with Michael and Mac and Hilton, a shadow was cast which I'm now glad to have been with, because it showed me another side of Mac. Marjorie was ill in hospital, and pretty ill, it seemed to me. One afternoon, I took her flowers, and as I walked there with Mac in the spring sun, the teeming Dublin streets around him seemed to become more and more Irish, and the spirits of Yeats and Singh and Lady Gregory were to me strongly mingled in the air. When he remarked what satisfaction I must derive from having absorbed and holding in my head the eloquence of Dickens, I said, but what about you and Shakespeare? All those marvellous parts swirling around in your head. ''Yes,'' he said almost absentmindedly. ''It's been my life, I suppose, and it's enriched me, and I've loved it.'' Then he spoke a couple of lines from Othello, not for effect, but as if there were something belonging to him that he was remembering. Then he recalled something funny that had happened on a tour, and when we arrived, he was bubbling again. But at his wife's bedside, he changed again. Marjorie did look ill, like a little girl who might easily be going to die. He perched next to her pillow and the complex and gleaming mantle of the star actor had fallen from him like a coat. He sat there holding her hand, subdued, gentle, worried, caring. He was suddenly very simple. Glad was right. He was a dear man.
6: Well, do you know, I think I must go back to the first time that I came across him, which was when he sent for my daughter to play Desdemona in Othello. And she came back, she said, Oh, mummy, she was then 17, she said, Oh, mummy, he is the real actor. She said, I don't think I've ever met a real actor before. And that's how I should define him. He was an actor before anything else, before he was a man, before he was anything. And he saw everything in theatre terms. Whatever happened to him in life at once turned into the terms of the theatre. His home included. When you went into his home, one part of it was Othello, one part of it was Merchant of Venice. There was the um, Much Ado About Nothing. You were always in a play, in whatever room you were in, or whatever part of a room you were in. He denuded the house of whatever play he was doing, and the house was turned out. And Marjorie, of course, followed on and and did whatever he wanted. And quiet as she was, she was a very astringent partner to him she was wonderful it's wonderful how a very quiet woman can affect a, a brilliant, terrific uh, personalities he was because he was a very theatrical personality and the theater was his milieu and i'm sure he turned washing his teeth into a part
7: to me personally his loss is a very great one because Even as the years caught up with him, he retained a youthfulness of mind and a a gaiety of spirit which never failed to charm. He had the talent of making every visit to him an occasion so that one always said rather excitedly, Do you know Max in town? Of course, like all artists, he had his moments of devastating depression during which he just withdrew into himself. But always he'd pop out again with some outrageous and amusing joke. He, I think, has been the link between this generation and the kind of theatre which, even if it has had its day, is still, to my mind, the theatre that is dreamed of by every enthusiastic young actor when he first goes on the stage, and the theatre that's really dreamed of by every true audience.
3: That last speaker was Hilton Edwards, a grave and reverend signor in Irish theatre and, indeed, in Irish television, but young enough to have worked with Mac in his prime now Piggledy Piggledy are a group of young actors who all come to pay a debt of gratitude to Mac. Barry Foster, Harold Pinter
8: and Pat McGee. Our first date was Youghal, which is just outside Cork. My first sight of a, an Irish village with this incredible light down there. You look across and see um, a hill with corn on it in August with. Um, a ruined barn near the brow of the hill, uh, perhaps half a mile away, and you see it all in perfect detail. You see the detail of the barn. And that was my first moment of realization of what uh, Italian Renaissance painting was about, incidentally. It was all it needed in the foreground was a crucified Christ and uh, a man tilling this hill in perfect detail half a mile away. And I realized, uh, that, you know, that all that isn't phony, that that's how it does look. And so, during the day, immediately, one got out on tour. You'd be starting rehearsal on The Inspector Calls... and, um Duet for Two Hands. He was introducing, uh, much to our dismay, plays, you see, modern plays... in which he couldn't really believably take much part in. which is far too huge for them. I mean, the point about it was... how you learnt was that you were coming back always to the same plays. You'd do on a Tuesday night your, uh, Um, Orlando or something in the perfect knowledge that one night next week and possibly one afternoon next week as well at a convent uh, matinee you would come back to that part you weren't saying goodbye to it ever but that the next night after Orlando you would be doing something completely different you always coming back to these plays but in different surroundings one night in the cork opera house a perfect Georgian Horseshoe Theatre, or Waterford, uh, an absolute little wooden classic of a theatre, uh, treading the same boards as Keane and Siddons. Next week you would be doing that play, but on trestle tables in a converted post office or something.
9: There was the day, the sleeping, the the theatre. The whole thing was one was learning in fact I hate to use a phrase like this but um, it really is true. It's something about how to live and for me this period with him in fact represented the golden age.
10: Well that sort of thing yes but uh, principally a silly thing to say about uh, largely the fun. I mean we had great times.
7: You know one didn't support Mac. One played a duet with him.
10: Kenneth
11: Haig. One night I'd been playing Laertes in Hamlet and it had gone really rather well and Max was in the wings and he had to come on for the graveyard scene and normally at the end of the graveyard scene he would go off in tears in a state of grief but after the performance was over he came to me and said uh, you can have my tears instinctively he felt that there couldn't be two <sighs> Two actors going on and about 20 minutes of each other in tears. It taught you
8: all those things which uh, everyone's busy telling you while you're a student that you'll learn in rep and which of course you don't. In weekly rep, that is. Because uh, weekly rep consists in in throwing a show on which is nowhere near performance on the Monday night and might be a little way near it by the first house on Saturday. Uh, After the second house on Saturday, you've said goodbye to that play forever. In this way, You learnt, A, from that, from from coming back to the place in different conditions each time. And the other thing was simply learning by having to exist on the same stage with Mac. There he was and you'd got to live with it. You'd got to actually appear as though you existed. He wanted you to exist and he wanted the ball to come over the net low and fast and right in the corner. He was very anxious that his Iago would be strong and attractive and in every way matching his brilliance. There was never any question in his mind of anyone taking a play from him. This he considered, quite rightly, um, to be too ridiculous to even think about. So one learnt from that. His merchant, you see, in the trial scene there were his moments and then when he gave his cue to Portia down he would go round he would turn and give her the cue and there it is girl you've got to do it now and it and it was her stage Barry Keegan I
12: learned a great deal from him um, he had this thing he said to me one day I was playing Horatio and I've forgotten now there's a couple of other characters in the o- opening scene and one of them says what's o'clock I believe was the line and I looked at my wrist having come from the the other school. And Mike was heartily delighted. He was charmed. I thought he was going to kill me. No he said, dear boy, he says. I wish more actors would listen and think of what the other is saying to them. If you listen to what's being said to you, your reactions must be perfect, must be right.
9: Uh, One thing he taught me apart from anything else was the virtue of keeping a straight face on the stage. He had complete mastery on the stage. We were playing the merchant, it was
8: either uh, Kinsale or Skibarine, and in the trial scene I was an old lady, which uh, Lorenzo always is. You see, he's not uh, needed there, and the garden scene comes immediately afterwards, so all you do is throw one of the many cloaks there were about all over you uh, to hide your Lorenzo um, costume, and uh, you are the leader, probably, of the crowd the rest of whom are the, are the local skibbereen lads. and This particular night, uh, Mr Pinter, who was giving us his uh, Bassanio, said, For thy 3,000 ducats, here is six. That's the line. But, of course, on this particular night, he said, For thy 3,000 buckets, here is six. Pause. The entire courtroom turned up to survey the cyclorama, or what passed for it, in Skibbereen, except Mac. He took a breath, took out his dagger, and tapped the bag of ducats, then said, If every bucket were in six parts, and every part a bucket, I would have my bond. At this point, um, it wasn't enough to look at the bag, the whole population of this court sauntered off into the wings except harold who couldn't of course move from center he clutched at his nose with his free hand in the manner of one about to leap into the sea
13: he could go to the corner to the prom corner and shout for his false teeth powder but the audience never knew that at all right in the middle didn't absolutely know so You know, he'd got there as well as coming out of the part, he'd be able to go back into it again without anyone noticing. He heard some boys playing with his car and hooting it on the horn horn thing, and he was hearing somebody's confession on the stage, Walter Humphreys actually, in in the part, you see, and he suddenly drew himself up, flung his robe round him, Beretta and all, walked straight out down the aisle, But nobody (laughs) stirred or turned to hair, screamed at the boys who went for six came back again the same way vaulted over the footlights and resumed the confession and nobody moved he
9: did the same in hamlet this terrible scene with his mother when uh, this particular light had robbed john the spotlight didn't come on and he had to have a candle which he'd forgotten and paddy was the electrician paddy who also played solana in the merchant oh. and uh rosencrantz i remember he was from clock jordan paddy and he was always buttoning himself up always very late and the merchant for instance juicy to get on because the Mac was saying we must go up where's paddy 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 and paddy had to do two things was he get the lights working and get his costume on which he never did and at uh, this particular occasion in the closet scene he said go go you answer with an idle tongue come come you with a wicked uh paddy
10: paddy you see paddy where the hell you
9: know all this all the time it was a constant it was a counterpoint a few
10: well it was necessary under these conditions because I uh, suppose you wound up in a little hall in the middle of Connemara somewhere with um, five rows of chairs and four rows then of benches and then nothing else. Well the chairs all moved all the time and the old benches they moved all the time and the fellows standing at the back they moved all the time and they were moving perhaps on a shaky wooden floor. Any of your well-known subtlety was... <laughs> down the drain. I I don't mean that everybody would go home but the chairs would rattle a bit more and the benches rattle a bit more and the guys at the back they would sort of uh, jump around more than they normally did which was quite a bit.
14: Henry Wolfe? The repertory we were going to present to our public was unequaled in the English-speaking world. In one week we were going to offer King Lear, the Merchant of Venice, Julius Caesar, Lady Windermere's fan, the white sheep of the family Murder Mistaken and The Taming of the Shrew. And I don't think that um, the Old Vic or Stratford or the new National Theatre may uh, go short in looking for someone to emulate, because when they achieve a weekly repertory like that, um, built around one man, then indeed they need look no further, I would think most of the publicity was
11: done by a man with a handbell (laughs) going up and down the street um, describing briefly what was going to happen tonight at the Christian Brothers Hall. I remember Harold and I walking up the street one night, one afternoon rather, and uh, a man on the other side saying, uh, ringing the bell and saying oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. We couldn't believe this. Couldn't believe it. This is 1953 or something saying uh, come to the Christian Brothers Hall tonight and you McMaster uh, in the, the Merchant of Venus come and see the old Jew become a Catholic. All of this Mac approved of.
3: H.A.L. Craig.
9: Macmaster was like a circus when he came to town. That he'd come into a little village and he'd walk down the street and people used to wait and watch him just as though an old-time circus had a parade and this was an extraordinary power
8: that he had over the countryside. He loathed driving, after all if you're doing these performances every week the last thing I suppose you want is a cross-country drive on a Monday morning, especially on a market day and he would give up finally in front of a herd and sigh and wind the window down and remember one occasion an enormous cow's head came through the window straight straight at his face it was um, after one knows uh, that a cow is harmless but this was a slightly terrifying mm-hmm. moment and um, Mac got hold of its damp nose and pushed it gently back out of the window and said no autocrafts today dear but he did believe in the theater he was such an actor you know he believed
12: in the sort of mystery of it you know one day in the key we always walked across the strand to turner's hall which was quite a shortcut and took about 20 minutes off your trip.
9: And I said to Mac one evening,
12: why don't you go all the way around the back, Mac?
9: And he said, never destroy the illusion. But I remember this remarkable magnetism he had for the audiences and for the actors on stage.
6: He got the actor's art uh, in its mimicry and its um, uh, largeness. I think he's not been properly appreciated in the theatre except from people like Pintos. That's where Mac will live probably in the people that he had with him.
15: George Hagen? I went along to see him play Othello again which as I like everybody else I admired it enormously. And when it came to the last scene I noticed he looked a bit unhappy about the lighting And I very soon spotted that it was because Desdemona's bed had been set a little bit too far onto the stage. thus keeping Mac away from his um, favorite position under the spotlight. Well, he started on the soliloquy. It is the cause, it is the cause, my soul. And then I noticed that he was very gently and uh, absent-mindedly kicking the rostrum across the stage with its contents of the bed and Desdemona and of course he got into his right position but I think the effort must have loosened his concentration just a little because he made one of those idiotic slips of the tongue that we all make from time to time and the famous lines came out like this yet I'll not shed her blood nor scar that whiter skin of hers than snow and smooth as monumental Asta Basta. Dorothy Primrose?
16: I can remember an interminable train journey when he talked to me about what he said was his favourite way of acting, touring around in Ireland and playing in the smallest possible towns and villages, in halls and tiny places, where the audience had no idea of how the play was going to finish. I can remember him talking for about 20 minutes about performances of Romeo and Juliet, when the audiences would shout out encouraging words and give him advice, and with that sunny sort of smile he said he was often tempted to take their advice and wondered how the play would finish up. In the tomb scene in Romeo and Juliet right at the very end someone cried out in great distress oh give her a good shake.
3: Dominic Behan? I
12: saw McMaster when I was three and years afterwards I knew him to act for about 15 years before I ever spoke to him. And when I was about 23, 24 years of age I spent a morning with McMaster. He was on his way to a theatrical costumier's to pick up stuff for one of the fill-ups he was working on. I got to the costumier's after spending the morning with him. He went into the costumier's and told me. He said, go in the pub next door, he said. And, uh, I'll see you. I'll see you in 20 minutes. 20 minutes. So I went into the pub next door and I waited for over an hour. There was no sign of McMaster. I come out of the pub and I saw him standing outside this theatrical costume. He was talking to the manager. I went to him and I said well uh... Mac I said what about that
3: drink? Ah yes presently my dear boy presently. But I have to meet uh, Dominic Behan in the pub next door. Rachel Kempston played with him in her first performance
17: before I went on for a certain scene in which he was almost too immediately to follow. He used to say now then dear hurry up get on get it over because you're all very fine in your tin-pot way but remember it's me they want to see.
3: Not everyone was
0: taken by his charm. Michael Ellis. Many years ago when I was very young I was in the wardrobe at and Festival Theatre when Annie McMaster was the leading man there. He was uh, supposed to have a great deal of charm which I never really fell for at all. I suppose it's because he's Irish and bloody difficult.
18: I I must say that
3: I I loved him. and Kenneth Griffith
18: and the first question I asked mr. McMaster was the question that worried me most of all um, how much rehearsal I'd have. he said a fortnight. I remarked that that wasn't very much for Hamlet and uh, he said well now, uh, this is important that I tell you this. Um, I was offered a hundred pounds a week, unbelievably, to play Hamlet for the Dublin Festival. And uh, at this point, Mr. McMaster said, uh, uh, Oh, he said, now, Mr. Griffith, he said, to make this financially possible, uh, I'm afraid you'll have to play Iago as well. Now, if there are two parts in the whole of the works of Shakespeare, I would like to play uh, Hamlet and Iago and I said well that sounded very interesting I said now mr. McMaster how long will I have to rehearse Iago or he said uh, a fortnight uh, the same fortnight
11: well I myself was hired by post I never met him while I was still a student at the Central School
14: I got the job by telling a great number of lies in an answer to an advertisement in the stage, saying I played every part in Shakespeare, and I got the job, but I think it had something to do with the salary I was prepared to accept. (laughs) (laughs) I did seven parts.
11: I I hardly knew the man. I could hardly recognise him, I'd seen him so briefly. I I had from Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we played Sunday as well, seven first nights. Nevertheless, I began to sense tremendously powerful aura on stage with me and uh, finally the weeks went by I got over the initial horror of this uh, tremendous um, experience <laughs> coming from being a student you see full of Stanislavski and things of this kind to uh, ending up what looked like a Piro troop to me however after about three weeks to a month Mac began to say Uh, little words of advice rather than direction to me um, in the wings or perhaps before a show perhaps while we're having a drink and it began to penetrate my sort of numbed consciousness that they were of uh, very much to the point they helped when I took them in and tried out the ideas they worked and finally I could see uh, what a tremendously dedicated actor there was behind this sort of madhouse of a company a man who uh, must have gone through the most tremendous discipline in order to pull out the things he pulled out. But the first thing he said, Darling Marjorie, wonderful for Darley.
12: Charles Darley, put the false piece on and we're off. Give him the job. And I didn't know what he meant at the time because I wasn't very familiar with the period plays or these type of plays. And I wondered, what the heck is he talking about Charles Darley? And he stood beside me. He profiled me. He stood backwards to me. And he said, Well, that was somewhat like Marjorie Darley. He's younger there, younger, but alike alike, which I might have been with uh, about three pucks less at the time. And this is how I first met Mac and this is how I first got the job. It was nothing whatsoever to do with acting. It was purely physical.
11: Something he liked about me, something he saw, and that was the end of it. One particular thing Laurence Olivier wrote about acting was that it needed a warm heart and a cold head. And I can remember Mac Really this is the most incredible thing. Never. I must have played Oth- in Othello with him a hundred maybe two hundred times. He was incredibly naked and unbearably moving in that last scene. I mean we were all plunged into the most dreadful condition even having to be on stage near this breakup of Othello. And I can remember him; he had a bed upstage centre with curtains drawn to uh, screen all the upstage area except the bed behind the curtains were lights and I can remember him now utterly like a broken oak standing there shattered streaming tears utterly transported an actor acting and suddenly whoosh, it disappear <laughs> come back nothing apparently changed in terms of the characterization except that he'd moved the light a little not always from self either, you see, maybe it was just something whimsical about Mac, but he was always delighted that when he hired an
14: actor that they can actually perform. I remember him saying, talking. he was so unselfish, and in fact it was a very bad introduction for me because he was much more unselfish than almost anybody I was ever liable to meet again. I was playing Lancelot, Gobbo, and he would say, uh, Henry, every laugh is worth half a crown, do what you like behind my back, and I doubted there's another Shylock anywhere would indeed. say that and indeed it wouldn't be fair and it got me into trouble later because it wasn't worth half a grand to other people. For me
11: anyway he was a very important actor in bridging the end of one era of theatre and acting and but was totally at home in the modern idiom. Somewhere or other Mac had uh, got that secret which I think would uh, be marvellous if all actors could keep on moving with the times.
7: As a producer, Mac had an approach which I suppose nowadays one one does not consider as very orthodox. As a producer, a director, a shaper of actors, I think he was inspiring and quite superb. He could analyse a part, I think he analysed it from the outside and gave you an exterior approach, it's perfectly true, with an occasional fine-pointed remark that revealed what was inside. But to any intelligent actor, and some actors, occasionally are intelligent uh, you were able to see from his exterior approach what motivated it and if you and you grasped it that way uh, if one failed to do that sometimes I suppose one was given somewhat next uh, ra- rather external performance but he was easy to follow in this way and uh, I always think he was a, a Mac was really a a musician Monkey, I always feel his approach was very, very musical. And I think this is this has, as I'm somewhat musically inclined myself, has affected me. And I suppose one of his greatest influences upon me has been that kind of approach, which in him was all right. But to follow, like in following most masters, is a very, very dangerous thing. I don't think that his plastic sense, apart from his own acting, was very great. I don't think he had any great personal feeling himself for the intricacies of of, uh, production and the the mapping out of movement as
2: uh, we consider it today. He helped when I think more than he realised because he never fancied himself as a director at all, except in the individual directing of certain people. Women he was especially brilliant with, I always thought. With actresses, he would describe a process of mind to a woman. And he helped me in very many ways when I did that most difficult of all things, I suppose. If you've been a boy actor and return to your work having dropped it for ten years, ten solid years, you find a world that's not totally new as it is to a new uh, uh, man going on the stage for the first time, but a world that is... Familiar, but that was a nursery and has now become a workshop. And the, the whole even physical technique. I remember he was always saying, "Why are you always looking up all the time?" Well, a child actor does usually. Isn't it curious? One looked up because everybody was taller than one was. By the time I went back, I was twenty-seven, and as you can imagine, I was fully fully developed in everything but brain. Uh, but there I was, just see, as tall as I was going to be, and so there was no need for me to look up at all. You know, I hadn't the, the excuse of being uh, a Martin Harvey in, uh, in height or anything like that. But there I was gazing upwards. It is charming, but it's a little young, shall we
0: say. <laughs>
3: Two actresses confirm uh, mclare view of Max's talent for directing women. First, Dorothy Primrose and then Rachel Kempson.
16: Then he did a bit of Juliet for me. He acted the part most beautifully. I don't mean that he tried to look or sound like a young girl he just made you feel that you were being a young girl and he did the bit about Gallop apace you fiery-footed steeds gently and innocently and brought the whole play right to the middle of this tiny little railway carriage.
17: At rehearsal I was rather intimidated by him because he was so enormous and uh, flamboyant and there comes the moment of the meeting between Coriolanus, Virgilia Alumnia and the child, and he says, My gracious silence, hail. Virgilia makes no reply, and at that moment in the production, we had to kiss. And the whole company were always there, and it was in a rehearsal room at first, and I felt terribly shy, especially of kissing properly in front of the company, because I was so new and I hadn't done this very much. So, when it came to the kiss, I slightly turned my head to one side. Max topped everything, waved his arms slightly and said, Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Dear, he said, will you give me your lips? And so, of course, very meekly, I put my mouth up to his and was kissed and never dared to turn my head away, after which we became the most wonderful friends. Then... The next production I was in with him was Hamlet, to which quite honestly, I think he wasn't suited, and he agreed entirely. He was too flamboyant for hamlet he He was an extrovert person, not an introvert at
7: all one's got to think of histrionics uh, when one thinks of Mac and this is what somewhat despised nowadays. I know that people think nowadays that the only place in which you must not be theatrical is in the theatre now this was not the the case with Mac. He lived in the theatre, he practically died in the theatre and I think that for people who go to the theatre, to see theatre, he was able to give them just what they wanted. I'm thinking now, where is there an actor today, even of his physical stature, his good looks and his superb figure, and he kept these to the last. And he had a God-given voice and it had that quality which stood the true test and made memorable lines and plays which normally were just swept away on a tide of rhetoric. Whenever I think of Mac, I I always hear him saying, here will I set up my everlasting rest and shake the yoke of inauspicious stars from this world-wearied flesh. And this very beautiful line, even taken out of context, he'd always make into a sort of special moment, magical moment of theatre
6: to me that the first thing about him was his contact with the audience and that is a thing that I think we are missing in this age more than anything I think a great many young actors act inside themselves this blooming method has taken charge of so many of the young that uh, they no longer think the audience is part of their life is part of their performance and they no longer now think about getting a thing over to the audience, so that the audience know everything that they're thinking. They no longer bother. Now, Mac made certain first that the audience got what he was thinking. He was an outward actor. And the Irish have got that knack of uh, entertaining speech. They've got more notes than the ordinary English person has. The ordinary English person likes to keep within an octave. Well Mac had, I should think, getting on for three octaves that he used. And I think actors should use.
9: Oh, his vocal range was quite remarkable. It was uh, unique. No actor in this country that I have seen has had the vocal range that Mac had. His cry in Oedipus and the bass notes too that he could be in Othello. There was nothing like it. One is not sentimentalizing the man as an actor to say that he did possess a magical, that the audience were confronted with a magical something on the stage. Yes, almost. When he allowed it to happen, I think it must be emphasized that he, sometimes when he wasn't interested, which was a great deal at the time, he was tired, you know, with the strain of it all. He would gabble, gabble away a whole part. But admit. they still
13: watched him, though. That was what's so funny. They didn't lose interest, did they? So he must have had some sort of magnetism, even when he wasn't trying.
9: That's true. That is true. And that, I suppose, comes down to his physical presence. Which, uh, really? his, his physical uh, gifts, he was six foot three, I suppose. He
11: was an old man when I worked with him, but he had this tremendous ability to knock out five or six giant rolls a week. So, therefore, he must have had great physical uh, dynamism. But it was more than that. It's quite obvious for a man of his age that he... he must have imposed quite a discipline on himself. But I can only think that that can come from inside, really. I mean, from Will. Will was what he had. Tremendous will.
9: His delivery of. I'll try to give you some kind of impression of it. It's. It is the very error of the moon. She comes too near Earth, and she was wont, and makes men mad. It was this extraordinary, terrible, coarse, prosaic pronunciation of mad. After the moon sailed era of the moon and then we came down to the grit you know and dirt of the madness he could do things like this and yes just do what
13: he had sort of international voice really because it wasn't a sort of modern voice was it and yet it wasn't edwardian either it was a sort of no. mix between the two the sort of broad vowels and things like that well, it was
10: a very extraordinary voice it seemed to have no limit either top or bottom i mean he could go way way up and way way down and up down up down just at uh, apparently at will
3: we shall come back to othello but different people had different favourites.
17: his Coriolanus was absolutely wonderful. his really egocentricity was suited to Coriolanus, which wasn't in least unpleasant in real life, but he had a tremendous egocentric quality, and this was simply wonderful for Coriolanus. He was terrific
1: his Macbeth, the first half of it was absolutely terrific because again you see uh, he was uh, he had this comprehension of horror and darkness, which was very funny because. Mac really had, he's about the only person I'd ever say, he had a sunny disposition. He really had a sort of sunny, it's the only way you could describe him off stage. But he had got this comprehension of horrors and of the real sort of darkness of life. And with that, and having this voice, always at the big moments, as I said, when the tops blown off the volcano and all hell's coming up, Mac was always, if he was at himself, he was really tremendous. And to play with him in the fourth act of Othello and that going into the fit and all that, I used to play Iago. It was it was a terrifying experience because it was all animal, but more than animal. I think far more because it was a soul as well. You see, it, it, it got this comprehension of, of, of spirit in it as well. It
11: it was really terrific.
3: Simon Carter.
11: He did did the merchant, and in the passion scene. Uh, you knew none so well as you who stole my daughter. I just dissolved. It was the hugest thing I've ever seen.
12: Oh, I think, without doubt, I would say Oedipus, Rex. Oh, easily. Easily to me, because... he hadn't got so many props to play with in Oedipus, you know? He had himself, his torso, just that, you know? Whereas in the Othello's, he had rings and bits and pieces flopping about the place. But in this, he was standing there in the centre of the stage, thinking and talking and feeling.
11: You see him stripped down for Oedipus. I, I thought he was about 70 at the time, I never knew.
1: What's this, Simon, I hear you say, I'm 80? <laughs> he said, rather,
11: rather irritated. He had ribs and belly of brass, and, and for Oedipus it really was astonishingly grand. It was good, it looked good, and on stage it became huge.
1: I remember in, um, in Oedipus... He, he, absolutely the, the old saying that your hair goes up on your head it really did with me on one occasion i was waiting to go on was playing the messenger and mac was ringing the last news out of the shepherd that he'd uh, murdered laos his own father and forgotten what is it three four children on your casta, and all this horror then he gets rid of him and he's got about three lines you remember before he goes off when well, mac said these lines and then he started to scream and God, it was the most horrifying and terrific and tremendous thing I've ever heard in all my life. It wasn't just a man screaming. You felt this has come up really out of the blasted pit. It's really come up and up through his his feet, his legs, his genitals, his guts, his throat, his head, and up and up and up. And it wasn't one note only but a whole series of notes. It was absolutely terrifying, terrifying and amazing. I'm sure if there's been somebody like Charlotte Bronte there to record that she she, she did about Rachel that the, the, the earth's cracked open and... Uh, uh, Rachel sh- saw all hell beneath her. That, that was a moment. And in those moments, he was unequaled, unequaled to anyone.
2: Well, I loved him in Mr. Fagan, which he played for outrageous comedy, in Oliver Twist, I mean, you know. And it wasn't founded on trees, Oliver Twist, at all, because uh, on trees, Fagan, because I played Oliver with tree when I was a little boy and max wasn't in the least like tree but it was an outrageously funny performance i thought his malvolio was very strange and funny too it was strange and cold and unexpected but um comedy i i the, the, what one might call strict comedy if you like a part of the order of petruchio for example i never liked him so much in but um his sense of humor which was so radiant and unexpected and, and acrobatic almost off, off stage, was not at its height on unless there was a grotesquerie in it. You see, Svengali, of course, he was completely fitted for, but that I think, as he himself would tell you, was more modeled on the tree performance macabre humor, strange, and very beautiful.
1: I think Mack had probably a very, very good sense of comedy and I would imagine, I I never played with him. I watched him playing uh, Charles Surface. I think that was very good. I think he got a sense of style of that kind of thing.
2: His personality was that of some brilliantly decorative and preposterous comedian. He seemed almost perpetually on the crest of some glittering wave of laughter and of high spirits and his unceasing declaration that life was sheer hell and that in spite of appearances he was suffering the agonies of the damned was uttered with such relish that one half expected him to float onto the air on the very wings of his own enjoyment. When things were bad, and they often were bad in those youthful years, he would send long and excessively worded telegrams to my sister Marjorie and me saying something like everything too terrible darlings come to lunch if you wish to see me alive nothing to eat but come all the same that west end part fallen through just as i expected dear landlady a cow but i'm trying to bear up utter despair mac
3: mac as you've heard was such a a vivid such a kaleidoscopic character that some people have perhaps thought him a little unreal
6: mac was real but he was real in a very large scale ham is one of the wickedest inventions. It's a stupid word, and ham only means insincere. There's just as much ham acting in the natural method actors. They are just as ham because they're just as insincere. Ham only means that it's not true.
2: In many ways, I think he was the most purely and entirely theatrical man I've ever known in my life. Everything, indeed, outside the life of the stage and the histories of its greatest people seemed dim and blurred to him.
8: He was like a symphony orchestra, playing a great symphony. When he decided he would give it, and there was no telling when when he would decide that, uh, it was staggering. It was staggering to watch and... Listen to and uh, ever since those days one has had to remind oneself that one actually was there on the stage with him. It was indescribable. When
3: asked oneself, perhaps rather foolishly, whether audiences were more impressed by his voice
8: or by his physical presence? He had both of course in enormous measure but my vote would eventually come down on the voice, I think. It's a tremendous voice, with the note of a great tenor in it, which um, Olivia's got as well, for instance. He would hit a note that would seem to go straight up to the back of the balcony and and hit the wall and come back, and you'd hear it on its way back uh, as well. It's the most thrilling sound in the theatre, I think particularly in the last half of Oedipus, when uh, it was just like um, listening to a piece of Wagner, just this incredible, thrilling trumpet sound would start and it would sway and, and, and come back. But it was coming out of this enormous Wagnerian figure as well, this incredibly handsome giant. I he got the lot. Othello is the part
7: that sticks out in my mind. I know he was very, very amusing and very charming and very good and very fascinating and mesmeric in his performance in, of, of uh, Svengali in, uh, in, in, in Trilby. But I don't know how much this was Max's own performance or how much he was coloured by tree. But I know in Othello and uh, in moments of his Hamlet, I felt that he was the
9: originator as well as the fine actor. He was so large in it that he almost filled the stage because the way that he, he rose to, to this part, he was a, as a, a great bull, as I believe Othello should be, baited and bellowing, wounded and pricked. And it was a very moving performance. i had just seen Gilgood play it. And although Gilgood is, I think, the finest actor in England, he was not as fine as MacMaster playing Othello. I played, as I say, Iago with him and working with him on the stage and he stood uh, so superbly, of course. I've never, never seen anything like his, uh, his posture and stance on the stage, the way he held his head. To
2: me, Othello, that is a very conventional thing to say, but I think Oedipus too. And on certain performances, Macbeth, though he was the most uneven Macbeth, you can imagine, I mean, the one night he'd been magnificent, another night terrible, and always interesting strange and gaunt and melodically so beautiful I've never heard a more melodic and wonderfully haunted Macbeth and a, a beautiful gaunt witch-ridden hag-ridden creature lovely lovely and uh, the Lear I only saw at the beginning at the time when he was still modeling it somehow and I never quite understood it so much I don't think he had the same characteristics so many people thought it was his greatest part I loved his Hamlet, too, in the earlier days, very much. And his Romeo was incomparable. I saw him before Hilton did. Uh, You know, and when I saw him... I suppose everybody who's ever played Romeo, in actual fact, is too old, you know. You'd be playing it as a boy actor, practically. But uh, his tomb scene was incomparable. The best I think I've seen and moments in Oedipus were the greatest I've seen. He was a curiously uneven actor, that was part of his charm. You couldn't imagine Mac carrying through any design in life or in art with a complete undivided attention, except that curious enough, his, his life was full of undivided attention in, in large things, you know. But uh, he would grow absent-minded in the middle of a speech of his you know his attention, wandered, and you could tell because his mind was like crystal. It had the crystalline quality of a child, you see. And you could see through this great crystal thing what was happening inside his mind. Always. He could hide no emotion if he was displeased with you. You knew it, not because he shouted at you or anything, but you knew by his eyes or his mouth... ...or the movement of his hands, you see. It was all. He was an actor.
13: Did you ever see him do the imitation of uh, September Morn? Because that was famous. He'd done it for twenty-five years. He'd ask oh, anyone, yes. "Did you do it?" He used to ask anyone in the dressing when he was ready, mm. but not until well, we had to close our eyes. We went in anyone else's dressing room, and then he would stand with his legs crossed at the appropriate place, and with a piece of chiffon <laughs> over a nude form, September Morn.
6: <laughs> <laughs> oh, we used to laugh when We didn't know what to do. He and Michael McLeary were together. The and uh, Hilton Edwards, who was a sort of uh, pacifying influence on them but these two together one would be bernhardt and one would be mrs patrick campbell
2: of course i'm pretty now i'm pretty still and a pretty woman whatever else she may be is always well endurable but even now i notice that the lines on my face are getting deep so are the hollows about my eyes. Yes, my face is covered with little shadows that used to be there. Oh, I know I'm going off.
4: In his um, most comic imitations, he never lost reverence for the stature of the people he was imitating. Oh, no, he wasn't a, uh, what I would describe as a bitchy imitator. He was just an amusing imitator. He loved, he loved actors and actresses. When he imitated them, it was not with malice, but with immense fun. But I think a reasonable basis of respect.
1: One o'clock strikes and the moon shines. Ah, did you was already past? Thank God,
2: thank God. Oh, the bells,
10: the bells.
1: You'll be rich! You'll
10: be rich!
1: Ah! I have you now! Do I have you now!
6: As a person, I found him a very true friend and a warm, generous friend. I always loved to have Mac in the audience because he would come behind and be so honest with one and so Appreciative, what one was trying to do he'd sometimes say i don't think you've got it quite there darling but uh, it was lovely all the same he'd always had such sympathy with telling one something and he was a very good critic
4: i think mac belonged to the real tradition of the theater the point of the whole of his whole life was to act on the stage in front of people. I don't think he minded whether the people happened to be in San Francisco or London or New York or Paris or Cairo. I think he liked coming onto that stage and flinging his arms about and sounding his voice and thrilling them. I think he was a very strong personality. And I think he just was a born actor. And I'm really very sad that I never saw him. I've heard his recordings, which are frightfully good, but I've never seen him actually on the stage. But I shall always miss him as a, as a friend.
5: If you ask me what I thought was his most prominent qualities, I would say he was the most childlike innocence that I've seen in a man, and the most dignified integrity that I've found in an actor. And above all, the most shining humility in any human being.
0: He was a man, I think, who didn't like to be under control. Consequently, he goes to Ireland, plays in all sorts of towns and villages, and, I believe, made quite a lot of money. He was a good actor.
2: His career, like himself, was bewildering in its variety, and its violent contrast, too. where he had renowned triumphs and desperate failures in quick succession. He had played, as I said of him once in in an old book, with many of the greatest stars, as well as with what often seemed the Toms, Dicks and Harries of the profession. He had been applauded in Hamlet and Coriolanus and in The Taming of the Shrew in fabulous places, and he had been ignored as Mr Fagan in the sort of country town that he himself used to call Ballyslitheramuck but always somehow Mac sailed through on a, oh, I don't know how to describe it really, on a sort of coruscating tide of laughter or despair. The same radiant figure would emerge, curiously untouched by everything and seemingly unapproachable, too, by those grim realities that throw their shadow over the lives of so many actors. Like the Phantom Rose in Gautier's poem, He passed through a life that seems to us, who look back on it now, at once as long as a summer's day and as terrifyingly brief. He lived joyously, heedlessly and very intensely as a child lives. Death came to him before the declining of his power, without any warning and without any pain at all. And he left to his wife and to his friends and to the Irish theatre, a world grown grey and cold, from what Shakespeare called a
0: dear absence. Among the speakers in that memorial tribute to Ainu McMaster were Mihal Mokleomoyt, Noel Coward, Emlyn Williams, Dame Sybil Thorndike, Elizabeth Bergner, Hilton Edwards, Harold Pinter,
11: Gerard McLaren, Pat McGee, and Barry Foster.